Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. All right, guys, Dr. Rob Dixon here. Welcome back to another episode of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Today, we uh, are super happy to have a special guest with us, Dr. Justin Hensley. is one of our colleagues and friends from South Texas. Uh, Justin trained at the East Tennessee uh, School of Medicine and attended a emergency medicine residency at East Carolina University. Uh, I first met Justin. We were fellows at the Texas College of Emergency Physicians, uh, and we uh, utilized him for some uh, lecturing. He's a great academic and lecturer, uh, does a lot of trauma lecturing. You can see him. I will plug him now early at the end of the show on at EBM Gone Wild, which is his, his uh, Twitter post that he blogs on. I also have uh, Dr. Casey Patrick, our associate medical director, and Kevin Crocker on the board. So welcome, Justin. Thanks for uh, being on the show today. Thanks for having me. All right. So today we're going we're gonna to talk about one of our most high-risk uh, uh, trauma prof- procedures, or a couple of those actually, um, field thoracostomy and traumatic amputation. But before we get to uh, the, the act of those procedures and the, the whys and the hows and, and some of our data and our evidence, we really want to kind of back it up and think about the sickest of sick trauma patients because in thinking about uh, field thoracostomy, these are patients who have undergone traumatic arrest. So before we delve into the details, I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on how we approach the traumatic arrest in the field and sort of how that has changed over the past 15 to 20 years, how we do it as a service, specifically here at MCHD, Dr. Dixon and Justin, how you how you teach that and lecture on that and sort of where, we, where we've uh, kind of borrowed our approach from and and, and some of those sort of big picture topics before we get into the details. Right. So we, we start off here. I mean, in, in all disclosure, I inherited this. This was an initiative by Dr. Mark Escott, who's down at Austin Travis County now, uh, who implemented the simple thoracostomy, the finger thoracostomy um, procedure um, back about five years ago. Uh, so he did the initial uh, research on it and the training program. Uh, for the training model at that time and implemented it in our highest level provider. So in, at MCHD, we have um, scaled levels of uh, accountability and responsibility from P1 to P5. So a P3 or above is a critical care medic. And those were the providers. So a very small group of providers that he initially baited this uh, procedure on and found it uh, to be safe and we, we carried it on. Um, and so I'd like to kind of pivot to Justin because we're big John Hines followers. Um, in the way we approach traumatic arrest and trauma patients. So I'd like you to kind of give some background on that, Dr. Hensley. Sure thing. So I kind of learned this all um, at SMAC in 2015 in Chicago and met John there and had seen some of his uh, stuff he had done with Scott Weingart and things. And basically he described these cases because he was a, a motorcycle doc who would be, you know, first responder on these motorcycle races and you know his biggest life-saving things were basically ensuring that oxygenation goes in first so it's abc right and you know first they would intubate and confirm by waveform and then the next thing they would do on any blunt trauma would be bilateral finger tease 
Um, and then they would do pelvic binding and straighten long bones and, and then start giving fluids. But that was the order they did it in before anything else, because they, he had enough case series to see that this is how you save people's lives. Uh, if the air can't get in because of tension physiology, then they're not going to live. So, so that's what he did. And, uh, he found that it was more accurate and more effective if you used your finger than if you tried to use a needle. Right. You know, and, and he has some amazing, I've read through some of his old case reports and stuff. He had some amazing results. I mean, he was riding on his motorcycle behind these guys, very proximate to their time of arrest, which I think I've listened to one of Dr. Escott's uh, lectures before. And I, I think that that is the, that's the, the, where this came from, right, is trying to take hospital interventions and deploy them to fix the reversible causes of traumatic cardiac arrest as proximate to the injury as possible. And he had some fantastic results. Yeah, he did. Uh, you know, he, he is actually by training, uh, was an anesthetist and an anesthesiologist and, you know, he would work in the emergency department and he would also do uh, responses from his house, but his whole goal was to perform the critical care ICU and emergency interventions pre-hospital because that's where they need it. It's, you know, you don't want to wait to, to transport them. You need to get it done as soon as possible to have better outcomes. Right. And so at MCHD, our traumatic arrest uh, clinical guideline just follows kind of a John Hines approach where we look at the reversible causes. So like uh, Dr. Teride or what Dr. Hensley said, it's exactly like our protocol reads. So we get there, we um, assess the patient, put a three lead on, plus or minus some first responder closed chest CPR, and then we assess. If the patient's in asystole, we stop. We don't continue on. If they, they're in PEA, and I'll pivot back around to why that is, but if they're in PEA, then we, we do five things. We establish an airway and ventilate the patient, oxygenate them. We open the chest with, now we use a uh, uh, endotracheal tube thoracostomy procedure uh, with no closed chest, without a focus, I should say, on closed chest CPR. So we rapidly deploy uh, these interventions and don't, do not focus on closed chest CPR during these interventions. So we establish an airway, uh, open the chest, we bind the pelvis, straighten any long bones, and give a, a fluid challenge. And that's in a t first two-minute time frame, two to three minutes, uncover the patient, look for other injuries, and then reassess um, to try to try to root out those reversible causes there. Is that is that about how you would approach it, Dr. Hensley? Absolutely. That's, that's what we also do at Robstown with our uh, highest-level paramedics. Right, because the, what we're trying to reverse, you know, one of the things that we did, and we're going we're gonna to talk about our study, and we'll kind of plug our study that we, we published in Journal of Emergency Medicine last month. One of, the, one of the things I think is important is to think about the, the tension or obstructive shock physiology, right? Casey, you want to talk yeah, about so just, that and how we can defeat that? Just so we don't, don't blow past sort of the, the root cause here, um, Tension pneumothorax is what we're treating. So these are patients that are in traumatic arrest. So these aren't awake patients. These aren't alert patients. These are patients that are that are pulseless uh, from either a blunt or a penetrating traumatic mechanism. And the idea behind simple finger thoracostomy or mo our modified uh, ET tube uh, pre-hospital thoracostomy procedure is to relieve that that tension, relieve that pressure. And when that accumulates inside the thoracic cavity and has no escape, then as it builds and builds, you end up with compression on the right side of the heart. 
you have compression on right side of the heart, you lose your ability to preload, you lose preload, you lose cardiac output, eventually to the point of cardiovascular collapse. So by relieving that tension physiology or that tension pneumothorax is there, you regain, regain circulation, regain a pulse. So that's, that's our, that's the goal, you know, sort of from the physiology foundation. You know, one of the things I think that a lot of listeners will ask at this point in the conversation is hasn't, you know, why are you guys, why are you guys doing this? Why do you, why do you preach this? This problem's been solved, right? What happened to the what happened to the 14 gauge angiocath and, and, and needle thoracostomy? Why are we, why are we this aggressive? So what, t- I think both you guys can speak to uh, sort of the evidence and uh, the movement of uh, from needle thoracostomy to more invasive finger, finger thoracostomy. Sure thing. I mean, I, you know, you guys are up just outside of Houston, but I'm here in South Texas. And, um, I mean, if I was going to needle somebody's chest, I would almost need a spinal needle. There is a lot of mass and tissue between their thoracic cavity and the outside world. And those needles, yeah, they let air out. Um, but they also collapse off or kink off even if they get in there. And, you know, I've, I've, thankfully it's kind of gone by the wayside, but I still see people every now and then that have got four or five angiocasts on one side of their chest because, they needle them once and the patient gets better probably because they had some kind of adrenaline rush from getting stabbed in the chest. Um, but then they start decompensating five minutes later and they get stabbed again and then they do it again and then they do it again. And it's like, come on guys, you know, I gotta, if, if they think they have a tension thorax, you need to correct the problem and not use these needles that aren't working. Yeah. I couldn't agree more, Justin. I think that, and we will put it on the show notes guys. I don't have the exact link to it, but there is a fantastic, um, in vitro model that some uh, Australian medics uh, have a, a YouTube video up on and uh, we'll put it in the show notes, but it is probably the best representation I've seen of not only how a tension pneumothorax uh, physiology develops, but inadic- the inadequacy of a small hole as Dr. Hensley alluded to and the inability to actually reach the space that we need to. And I think that the, the literature supports uh, that assertion, uh, Justin, that this is not a really great procedure. If you really want to fix the problem, I think the safest way for these patients is an open procedure, right? In, in a simple thoracostomy procedure, we know exactly where the instrument is, exactly where our finger is, exactly where the uh, the bougie and the tracheal tube are. Yeah, because, I mean, if, if we just keep going to longer and longer needles, people are going to start stabbing subclavians. They're going to start putting intraventricular needles. They're going to poke livers. They're going to do stuff with those needles. It's like a trocard chest tube. You don't want a really long, sharp thing. You want something that goes just as far as it needs to and stops. Right. And in, in our procedure here, I'll, I'll kind of circle back to what ours is. So ours is indications for, for tube thoracostomy are traumatic cardiac arrest. Um, in the procedure, it's very straightforward. No close, we have a, a silent chest, so we don't do closed chest CPR while we're doing this procedure. We do bilateral uh, thoracostomies. We use uh, uh, a technique to mark called Gillum's Lime, which is where you um, r- take your, your hand and kind of a, if you're holding your index finger and thumb at 90 degree angles to one another, you run it down the chest to the top of the breast tissue uh, with your thumbs and the axilla. Your thumb lands in between the anterior and the mid-axillary line, uh, right where you need to be about the fourth or fifth space. So that's how we teach our medics uh, to mark the spot. We make a, a incision down uh, to the top of the rib, 
and then Kelly clamp over the rib and press to puncture the, the pleura. Dissect that by opening the clamp, and then we teach here whenever we make a hole, we immediately put our finger in. So the uh, clamp opens to dissect up the finger in, and then a bougie that's loaded on an 8 endotracheal tube goes into the pleural space, followed by the tracheal tube. You blow the balloon up. It does not need to be sutured or sewn into place. And we found that the balloon technique, uh, which we are indeed from uh, the Sydney Hems guys, had written a paper on it, uh, works very well to secure these things. So that's basically our procedure. What we don't do, uh, and, and I'll let you comment on this, Justin, is we took out all pericardiocentesis because we found that it was a very difficult procedure to do. And in traumatic arrest, it's to me, it's likely unhelpful if you have a, a blunt uh, arrest enough to you know, rupture your heart and have a hemopericardium, that's a non-survivable injury. So we, we, we saw more iatrogenic injuries with those. And my fear was, is that we would focus so much on a procedure, i.e. the pericardiocentesis that would not work in trauma, that we ignored the procedure that does work in trauma and is positive in about one to three to one in five patients. And depending on who series in our series, it was 30% of the patients had a positive finding for attention on their on their simple thoracostomy so that's kind of how we approach it you want to comment on the on the pericardiocentesis issue and whether you think that's that's a good thing for for paramedics uh, i agree it's that is a low yield procedure i don't have actual data in front of me i've got some anecdotal anecdotal information that you know if it's a if it's a high pressure system that's bleeding into the pericardial sac they're going to die before you can do anything really um because even if you poke a hole they're just going to keep bleeding out of it the only patient i've ever personally witnessed survive uh, had a, uh, a a rent in their uh, superior vena cava that bled into the the pericardial sac that actually um did improve and that was because it was a low pressure system so even if you gave them more pressure it didn't pump a ton of blood into there and so it was able to kind of sort of prevent further bleeding and wasn't able to get full tension physiology. But if you've got enough pressure to get tension physiology for a pericardial tamponade, pre-hospital, you're not going to, you're probably not going to survive that. Right. Um, and pe the naysayers asked us about penetrating injury. And what we teach is like, listen, if you have one that's on the precipice, it's not an arrest. If they're in arrest, it's likely not going to be helpful. If they're not in arrest, what do we do? We preload them up and it overcomes that tamp, that, that obstructive physiology, it buys us time to where we can get the patient to definitive therapy and have an ultrasound guided procedure or pericardial window by the surgeons. So just a little bit of my own personal history here at MCHD. I, I came on board a couple years ago. I'm right around my two-year anniversary. So simple thoracostomy was well, was well underway here uh, when, when I started as assistant medical director. And when I got here, it was not something that I was familiar with in, in the pre-hospital setting. I hadn't been involved with an EMS service that had, that had performed this procedure. You know, I hadn't really thought through the protocol. And admittedly, to me, it seemed, um, you know, pretty advanced, uh, a pretty advanced procedure to be, to be teaching, teaching our medics. What if, you know, I've done a 180 since I've been here based really on the data that we've collected. And we've, we've done... A uh, pretty thorough job of, of tracking these patients and tracking outcomes. Uh, Dr. Dixon, tell us what we've what we found since we implemented the protocol at MCHD, and and what our a little bit a bit of background on our result. 
Right. Thanks, Jesse. So we, we looked at a uh, retrospective case series um, from when Dr. Escott started this procedure, uh, uh, 2013 to 2017. We had 57 patients in our cohort with traumatic cardiac arrest. Um, as you could, most of them in our um, area were blunt. So it was 70% blunt uh, mechanism of injury. Of those 65%, so two thirds of them presented in PEA. Um, the procedure, I think the important numbers of this procedure are about one in three of them had air return. When we did the simple thoracostomy procedure, we, i.e. had a positive um, test on it. I mean, we, we did the procedure, we had air return. We got return of spontaneous circulation in that cohort in 25% and then 4% survived neurologically intact for discharge from the hospital for a survival rate. In, and of those, they were all blunt mechanisms. So 7% survival rate in traumatic cardiac arrest with a blunt mechanism, neurologically intact to hospital discharge. So to me, that was super impressive. We compared it with a cohort of similarly matched patients um, before we initiated the simple thoracostomy. So just people that got needles and the survival rate was zero in that same cohort. When you match the, the, the cohort um, that just simply had the same type physiology but had needles, survivor zero. Sadly, our numbers were not robust enough uh, to meet statistical significance, but we thought there was a couple take-homes in the paper that were important, which is A, it confirms what they found in other studies, that this is a pretty common physiology and cause of, of or presence in traumatic arrest and trauma patients with thoracoabdominal trauma, right? One in three in ours and in other studies, it's, you know, about 25 to 30%. So this is a fairly common uh, disease process in these patients. And then th simply the survival rate was pretty astounding to me. And what we're doing now is we're continuing on. We've actually uh, expanded the procedure to our in-charges. Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit about how we train and try to keep up competency for that. But I you know, you look at very little downside. We have not had people talk about medic injuries and things. We've had no lacerated fingers, reported medic injuries. Um, so I think for the patients and for the providers, it's a pretty, uh, a pretty safe procedure if you have the, the resources to teach us. I mean, if you think back, uh, I'm, not, I'm not ancient, but when I trained a lot of the, the studies out of uh, Denver were quoted for blunt traumatic arrest survival, and the number was less than one percent. Um, so I know that the survival rate doesn't seem huge if you're if you're listening to uh, to Dr. Dixon's numbers, but relative to less than one percent to what what we were able to to achieve, I think is is pretty significant. And you think about why, I think the answer goes back to back to John Hines on the motorcycle behind the wreck, right? It's just proximity in time and place to the injury and the arrest, right? If tension physiology is there and we can get the decompression to the patient 20, 30, 40 minutes quicker than we could have in the past, i.e. wait for transport to get to the ED for the same procedure to happen, I think patients' outcomes sure seem like to me, and I think that we have uh, started a, a long way of proving, are going to be better. All right, and I think that one of the things that um – I'd like to address, and I'd like Dr. Hensley to address, is kind of the pushback on, you know, we've all been trained, you know, close chest CPR, close chest CPR, and it's really kind of 
that, that's one of the difficult hurdles we found is getting people off the chest to understand that's not, that's not particularly beneficial in these traumatic arrest patients. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I, since learning about it from, from obviously way smarter critical care guys, you know, it, it's one of those logical things. We've seen it since the sixties television shows, even though it really wasn't being done that much then either. As soon as somebody goes down, you do CPR and in trauma, the CPR isn't useful. The reason they're not perfusing is not because their heart's not pumping because it's in some type of VTAC or VFib arrest. It's there's something obstructing the blood from going into the heart. So you're just pushing on something and it's not going anywhere. There's something obstructing the blood from coming out of the heart. There's no blood to pump around, in which case you're not doing any good. And it just doesn't help any. Um, and it prevents you from doing the things that do help, which is more important. I, you know, if somebody wants to do it while somebody else is starting the airway and, and putting chest tubes in, I don't stop them. But if, if that's the only set of hands you have, then do the thing that saves the patient's life. Right. I couldn't agree more. And, and to, to go back to the study and what we found, that's why we don't work asystole presenters is that all of our survivors were P, present in PEA, which makes sense to us, right? It's a very low, you know, these are traumatic cardiac arrests where maybe they're a low flow state and they just have an imperceptible pulse due to their, their injury pattern. Go back to five H's and five T's, right? right. We're fixing one of those. That's, right. that's the goal. And there's not a five H it's five T's for asystole, right? Yeah. That's for PEA and basic ACLS. Right. ATLS. Casey, can you go and just discuss a little bit about how we how we train our providers and how we maintain competency for this procedure at MCHD? So we use we use a human cadaver model and we have uh, training sessions yearly. Um, we rotate our, our medics through on a scheduled basis and we uh, both Dr. Dixon and I are in the are in the lab with with our medics. We we walk through the procedure uh, both of us, uh, we have uh, ample time for the medics to perform multiple uh, simple thoracostomy procedures. Uh, we have the bougie set up. We teach, uh, we teach the uh, bougie preloaded uh, with the or the ET tube, excuse me, preloaded with the bougie. Um, we uh, rotate them through again every year. Uh, we've got a uh, excellent agreement with the uh, Montgomery County forensics lab and they allow us to use their space and it's really it's probably out of the the days that I come to work each year it's definitely up there if not the top of my favorite days is really walk through them and real walk through this procedure with them in real time and kind of see it click as far as oh that's how hard you have to push with the Kelly oh that's what it feels like to go over the right. rib um, just really is a uh, it's a it's a, a very fulfilling day for me as an educator. I enjoy it. Uh, feel free to add. Yeah, it's a fantastic experience, I think, for our medics. And, and we're very, very lucky to be resourced and have the support to, uh, to train the crews like that. So I'm going to pivot back to Dr. Hensley. Can you comment on that, Justin? So if you were going to deploy this in one of your services, you know, would you be comfortable in, a, say, a service that with le less resources in a non-cadaver model or a, a, just a chest model? And that's part one of the question. And part two is, where do you see this going? Do you see more, more services buying into this and, and uh, deploying these uh, types of procedures pre-hospital? So first, yes. Um, you know, the, the lack of a cadaver lab is, is pretty universal. Y'all are uh, pretty lucky and unique in having that resource. Uh, most of us don't have that. And down here, we don't even have like a, a, a pig lab or anything like that. You can get sides of 
animal ribs and that kind of gives you some fidelity on it uh, or you have to do a a trainer simulation um, and you can make those and there's some pretty good companies out there making those now or you can make your own homemade there's some uh, YouTube recipes out there that the the FOMED community has has made basically because it's a resource dependent thing but we wouldn't, you know, people are training cricothyrotomies without cadaver labs. And it's, you know, it's being facile with the scalpel and the tool is all it is. And then muscle memory and going through it. And so as long as you make it look real and they get the sense of the feeling, they can do it. They don't have to practice on people. And I mean, this is one of those high yield procedures. They're not going to harm anybody. We're not talking about procedures that could possibly harm somebody. These are pulseless patients that we have. And so we're not mutilating their bodies. They're putting finger sized holes in their chest, but they need to be able to do it. And so the training should have some sense of the muscle memory, but it doesn't have to be a direct human model. Correct. And secondly, I hope more places do this. Uh, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of resistance and a lot of dogma in the pre-hospital world, especially with, uh, teaching. And then there's a lot of uh, problem with uh, medical directors who are reticent to allow progressive things. Um, there's concern about liability and legal issues. And I, I, I hope people realize that, you know, these are the sickest of the sick. And these are the people we can probably do the most for as far as changing their outcome from dead to not dead. And therefore, I hope more people do it. Yeah, I do too. I, I couldn't agree more. So that's a great place to wrap it up. So we thank you very much, Dr. Ensley, for coming on and being our uh, guest today. Check him out on Twitter at, at EBM Gone Wild. Uh, post a lot of really fantastic things on wilderness medicine, trauma, and all things emergency medicine. Again, thank you, Dr. Patrick and Kevin, and we'll talk to you viewers just soon. Just real quick, if you guys are listening closely, you will notice in the intro that I mentioned a discussion of uh, traumatic uh, field amputation. We didn't get to that and today. We, did not we get, ran over. We did not get to that today. We ran over. We promised ourselves that we're going to keep this into a commute drive length <laughs> podcast. So we Long commute. So, yes, I said it earlier, and we had no place to stop this discussion. I think it was excellent. Thanks again to Dr. Hensley for joining us remotely today. We will get to traumatic amputation in a future podcast and discuss uh, MCHD's new traumatic amputation protocol at that time. Thanks, guys, for joining us. All right. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.